my name is Andrea Crisp, welcoming you to this week's episode of 12 Notes, Discovering Us in Music. With just a couple weeks left until Valentine's Day, today's episode is all about the passion of music. Now, personally, I don't like Valentine's Day very much. I feel like it's a commercialized holiday, and every year it pressures people and pushes against the truth. Not all people need or want romantic love. But despite that, I do think that love is one of the most important emotions a person can feel. And historically, music hasn't proved me wrong. One of the most universal aspects of music is love songs. Everyone's heard them, and they just work. Regardless of tempo or genre, everyone can find themselves in a love song. And according to youdiscovermusic.com, it has been estimated that more than 100 million love songs have been recorded. Love is such a complex process, full of cherished highs and devastating lows, that we can all understand. Sometimes the saddest, lowest points of our lives are the gut-wrenching moments of heartbreak. Love is passion and pain, the best of times and the worst of times. And like music, everyone can understand its depth. And scientifically, while listening to music can release dopamine, the feel-good chemical, singing can also produce oxytocin, a hormone often associated with cuddling. So today, we're traveling back in time. Forget about cell phones and Netflix and women's rights because we're going back to the year 1830. Why? Well, that's when the Romantic period started. During the 1800s, Romanticism impacted various art forms, producing painters like Francisco Goya and Theodore Géricault, but as noted by Encyclopedia Britannica, musical Romanticism was marked by emphasis on originality and individuality, personal emotional expression, and freedom and experimentation with form. Long story short, composers and musicians were breaking barriers simply because their hearts told them to. Characteristically, musical romanticism includes waltzes and arpeggiated bass lines, wider range of expression, fluctuation in tempo, including rubato, character pieces with descriptive titles, prominence of piano literature, and nationalistic influences connected to the social climate of the time. The Romantic period also resulted in the creation of various new musical forms, including nocturnes, ballads, and mazurkas, and now, musical characteristics of the era have a great influence on music and film, especially composers of the late Romantic period, like Richard Strauss. Musical Romanticism is a huge part of my identity. I started playing the piano when I was four, and as a very large part of my life and musical foundation, it's something that my dad and I can bond over. His favorite composers have always been revolutionary and passionate artists like Frederick Chopin and Sergei Rachmaninoff. So the Romantic period and the stylistic characteristics of the era continue to influence the way I play. This era is so diverse and vast, so I'm going to try and share as much as possible. But keep in mind that there is so much more to explore within the Romantic period, a time with some hugely popular composers and others that were barely recognized during their lives. So let's get started! Interestingly enough, our final artist last episode, female guitarist Nita Strauss, claims to be a descendant of Romantic composer Johann Strauss II. Known popularly as the Waltz King during his lifetime, Strauss focused most of his compositions on light dance music, much like his father, who didn't want him to pursue music at all. However, with support from his mother, he did anyway. Strauss also wrote various operettas, an opera, and a ballet, which he left unfinished when he died in 1899. One of his more famous operettas, Die Fliedermouse, also known as The Flittermouse or The Revenge of the Bat, premiered in 1874 and has since been adapted for film and TV 20 times. So let's take a listen to Herbert von Karajan and the Vienna Philharmonic performing the overture of Die Fliedermouse. Thank you. 
Next, we have Ludwig van Beethoven, who was technically also a classical composer. Much of his life landed during the classical period, but his later years of composition mark the beginning of the romantic period. A life filled with tragedy, Beethoven's music often reflected his life, and he famously wrote many of his compositions while going deaf. One of his later compositions, written while completely deaf, was his choral fantasy, meant to be a brilliant finale, combining piano solo, orchestra, and mixed chorus. Although the piece's premiere ended in a disaster, many now tie the fantasy's melody to the theme of his famous Ode to Joy in the well-known Ninth Symphony. I actually played the first movement, the piano solo, a couple years ago, but today we'll be listening to the second movement of Beethoven's choral fantasy, performed by Martha Argerich and conductor Seiji Ozawa. Next romantic composer is Franz Schubert, who was a torchbearer at Beethoven's funeral in 1827, according to Classic FM, just one year before he himself would pass away. In life, Schubert focused on composing piano and chamber music, alongside symphonies and operas, notably writing the holiday song Ave Maria. So for our next piece, we have Evgeny Kissin playing Impromptu Opus 3, number 90 by Franz Schubert. As I previously mentioned, Schubert's life was cut incredibly short, living just to the age of 31, after suffering from symptoms of mercury poisoning. While some believe his failing health was due to syphilis, he continued to compose music as his health declined, and he passed away leaving behind tons of music, including a symphony with only two movements. Labeled the unfinished symphony, no one is sure why he left it incomplete, but Schubert never went back to it before he died. So here is Schubert's Unfinished Symphony, performed by Leonard Bernstein.
Next, we have Felix Mendelssohn. Born to a wealthy German-Jewish family, he had an older sister, Fanny Mendelssohn, who composed music during the Romantic period and was often overshadowed by her brother, who some have accused of stealing her works. While Mendelssohn was celebrated during his life for making Leipzig, Germany, a musical center of Europe, his music was later banned by the Nazis. Mendelssohn also wrote the famous overture to Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream when he was just 17 years old and went on to revive Johann Sebastian Bach's music before eventually composing other famous pieces. So let's take a listen to the wedding march we all know and love as performed by the Berlin Philharmonic. Frederick Chopin, my personal favorite as long as I've been playing his music. Born in Warsaw, Poland, Chopin composed primarily for piano, living to the age of 39. Known for his poetic, passionate, and memorable melodies, Chopin reinvented the scherzo, promoted mazurkas and polonaises, and went on to invent the instrumental ballade. The first to compose etudes meant to be performed rather than just technical studies, Chopin wrote 27 etudes in his lifetime including tristesse, meaning melancholy. beautiful performance by Maurizio Pellini. I've been playing this next piece for a few months now, and it's very close to my heart. As I previously mentioned, piano is something that helps me and my dad connect, and as a little girl, I can vividly remember hearing him play this. Sure, it tires out my hands, but I will always love fantasy impromptu. So here is Arthur Rubinstein performing Chopin's posthumous fantasy impromptu, Opus 66. song, Ballade No. 1 in G minor, displays the musical form Chopin is credited with creating, intersecting voice with piano. Ballades are poetic, one-movement pieces, and some believe Chopin's influence on the ballade arose from his feelings of loneliness during the Polish uprising, which never allowed him to return to his home country. After he died, per his posthumous request, Chopin's heart was taken back to his beloved Poland by his sister, so let's take a listen to Arthur Rubinstein once again with this Chopin Ballade.
1838 and 1839, Chopin and his lover, known by her pen name George Sand, spent a winter on the Isle of Majorca and found themselves staying in a monastery after rumors of a visitor with consumption spread through the local population. Many speculate that his famous raindrop prelude was inspired by the rainy time he spent in Majorca, but he denied to Sand that he made the connection while writing. Raindrop was one of the first Chopin preludes I played. I've always loved the story that the music seems to tell behind the water droplets, and pianist Vladimir Horowitz performs it beautifully. Like a few other great romantic composers, Chopin lived an incredibly short life. Despite composing over 230 pieces of music, he struggled against his poor health for nearly two decades. Ultimately, though he lived far longer than could be expected, Chopin died in 1849, leaving behind unpublished manuscripts like that of his posthumous nocturne in C-sharp minor. Our next performer, Vladislav Spielmann, has lived a hard life, and his story of surviving World War II and the Holocaust is highlighted in the 2002 movie The Pianist. So here is our final Chopin song, which was featured in the film. Our next composer, Robert Schumann, is known for his tone poem music, a characteristic of the period, with descriptive titles. Initially a lawyer, Schumann became a composer and eventually he ruined his hands and could no longer play. A few years ago, I played scene number one of Foreign Lands and Peoples of one of his piano cycles, Kindersennen, or Scenes from Childhood. Written in 1838, Kindersennen originally included 30 movements but was finalized with 13 and he described them as more cheerful, gentler, and more melodic than his previous works, according to Wikipedia. So let's take a listen to Vladimir Horowitz.
Throughout his life, Schumann and his wife, Clara Schumann, published 12 songs together, including Widmung, a piece meant to accompany the dramatic love poem by Friedrich Rückert of the same name. The virtuosic Hungarian composer and a friend of the Schumanns, Franz Liszt, went on to arrange this piece, alongside various other Schumann works, and the song is now known under two different titles, as Liszt changed his rendition to Liebeslied. So here is Ebony Kissin. Staying with Liszt, we have Liebestrom. Although Liszt would later become a Franciscan monk, he was known for his rock star-like persona and his music of the time was romantic and light, a contrast to many of his darker compositions. He would go on to influence impressionistic composers like Claude Debussy and Maurice Ravel. Although many of his compositions were influential transcriptions of other composers' pieces, Liszt composed Liebestrom, a set of three solo piano works, in 1850, while Liebestrom, meaning Dream of Love in German, is a set of three pieces, number three in A-flat major is the most popular. So let's take a listen to Katia Buniacifili's live performance. Our next composer, Camille Saint-Saëns, was also a part of the Impressionist movement, found in French composers and music of the late 1800s and early 1900s, focusing on atmosphere, extended harmonies, and parallel motion. Saint-Saëns was an organist, pianist, and conductor of the Romantic period, but he was also gifted in mathematics, language, geology, and astronomy. 
1886, he composed a musical suite called Carnival of the Animals. The piece features 14 movements, including Aquarium, which was played at my parents' wedding. So here is Aquarium, played by Yuja Wang and David Fung. In the same year, Sanson wrote the Organ Symphony and dedicated both of today's highlighted pieces to Franz Liszt, who had recently passed away. Greatly impacted by the Franco-Prussian War, Sanson would go on to travel the world living in Algeria for the last years of his life, before dying in 1921. Interestingly, he was more popular abroad than at home, and now, Organ Symphony No. 3 marks the artistic peak of his career, as is demonstrated by Christoph Eschenbach and the Philadelphia Orchestra. Georges Bizet was considered an incredible pianist, but rarely performed in public. He was largely forgotten shortly after his death, and is now known for his operas like Carmen. In 1863, Bizet began writing for Les Pêcheurs des Perles, incorporating music from his one-act opera, La Gousle de l'Emir, which he pulled from production. While the new opera premiered with only 18 performances, it features the famous Pearl Fisher's duet, a comment on the bond of an unbreakable friendship. So let's listen to a performance by Yussi Björling and Robert Merrill. La tour 
most famous composers of the Italian romantic opera scene is Giacomo Puccini, who worked alongside opera greats like Rossini and Verdi. One of his more popular operas, Madame Butterfly, initially bombed, pushing him to rewrite it five times, and features Un Bel di Vedremo, a song that captivates audiences and foreshadows the tragic conclusion of the story. It was the first opera I ever saw, and by the end, eight-year-old me was sobbing. One of the best things about opera is the universal impact of the music. So here's an excerpt of Un Bel di Vedremo from Madame Butterfly, performed by Maria Callas. <laughs> Puccini's great works are equally as tragic, including Tosca and La Boheme. Gianni Schicchi, however, is a one-act comedy based on an incident in Dante's Divine Comedy. O mio babino caro is an aria from the opera, and is performed by a soprano playing Loretta, Schicchi's daughter. Many women of opera have sung this song, including Anna Netrebko.
with Impressionism, we have Claude Debussy. Disliked by fellow composer Sanson, Debussy is considered the first Impressionist, despite denying that he was an Impressionist. Debussy would go on to die in Paris during World War I, but could not be buried at the time. His music is lyrical and was frowned upon during his life, as he performed shorter compositions and wrote many pieces based on poems, including his own. Claire de Lune, the third segment of Debussy's Suite Bergamesque, is one of his most recognizable works, and I'm learning to play it this year. So let's take a listen to Evgeny Kissin playing Claire de Lune. Next up, we have Pyotr Tchaikovsky, well known for his overtures and ballets, including Romeo and Juliet, Sleeping Beauty, and The Nutcracker. He also wrote various concertos for the piano, cello, and violin. This includes his violin concerto in D major. So here is a performance by Joshua Heifetz. Interestingly, Tchaikovsky initially studied law, like Schumann, who had an incredible influence on him. Also influenced by French composers Bizet and Sanson, Tchaikovsky's music was often criticized for not being Russian enough. In his personal life, Tchaikovsky struggled as a gay man of the 1800s, attempting to commit suicide by jumping into a river, like Schumann, shortly after marrying one of his female pupils. Despite the grandiose beauty of his music, Tchaikovsky's life was difficult, and it is unsure if he died from poisoning or by purposely drinking unsanitary water. Before we move on, here is another climactic excerpt from the violin concerto we heard earlier. we have the man with the big hands. With a hand span of 12 inches, Sergei Rachmaninoff was hugely inspired by fellow Russian composer Tchaikovsky and also drew inspiration from Liszt and Chopin. As a child, his family failed to see his talent and potential, but Rachmaninoff had the ability to play complex compositions upon first hearing, according to Pianosociety.com. Still, 
the world around him had an immense impact on his compositions, and after leaving his home country due to the Russian Revolution in 1917, he became depressed and homesick, writing just six more pieces. One of these pieces was Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini, so here's an excerpt from Variation 18, performed by Vladimir Ashkenazi, Andrei Previn, and the London Symphony Orchestra. would die in 1943, a month after his last performance, which included Chopin's funeral march prophetically. In life, his career was very performance-based out of necessity to support his family, as his compositions were a roller coaster of bad reviews and subsequent triumphs, and he toured in America for quite some time. But today, he is known for Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini, his preludes, and his concertos, including Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor. Influenced by his first concerto, which was criticized heavily, leaving him depressed, this piece is now considered by some to be his most popular work. So let's take a listen to Vladimir Ashkenazi and the London Symphony Orchestra's rendition of the second movement, Adagio Sostenuto. started and are ending with a Strauss, even though they aren't related. Richard Strauss was the father of modern opera music. During World War II, his life was changed forever, and although he was once a celebrated head conductor for the Nazi party, 
he was fired for openly collaborating with Jewish artists and promoting band composers like Mendelssohn, Mahler, and Debussy. Strauss's daughter-in-law was Jewish, and he struggled to protect her family from the anti-Semitic government. Even though he was able to save her and his grandchildren, the rest of her relatives did not survive the camps. On a lighter note, some favorite Strauss quotes of mine include, Never look at the trombones, you'll only encourage them. And, do you suppose Mozart was consciously Aryan when he composed? I recognize only two types of people, those who have talent and those who have none. Here is one of his famous last four songs, Beim Schlafengehen, performed by Gundula Janowitz in the Berlin Philharmonic. started with a light and lively waltz and ended with a song of slumber into dark night, just like the lies of these composers that epitomized the light and the darkness, the best of times and the worst of times, and the duality of mankind. It's hope, an open mind willing to accept one another, and the victory of good over pain and evil. It's the ability to cherish the best of times over the worst of times, to love and not hate. And ultimately, life comes in waves, just like tears and laughter and heartbreak and that giddy feeling you get when you realize how much you care about someone. Because everything worthwhile undulates. Everything we hold on to tightly rises and falls. And the light makes the darkness all-encompassing. And the darkness makes the light that much brighter. In this world, it's hard not to let rules hold you back. Even when we're metaphorically thinking outside of the box, we're still limited by how far outside we can go. Throw away the box. Throw away its top and bottom and walls, and then you're left with the infinite expanse of space to free your mind, free yourself, and to explore. Then you'll be free to interpret free to go beyond borrowing time, to instead learn to bend time itself. In life and in music, it's okay to go beyond what's right in front of you. It's okay to rise and fall, speed up and slow down as you see fit. Follow your heart, make it your own, and be willing to listen when others make music theirs. All music is worth listening to. Regardless of race, gender, sexuality, or religion, we all have a voice worth listening to. So keep an open mind and an open heart to everything. Because then, hopefully, we'll do the right thing for all of us. On our next episode, we'll be honoring Black History Month by celebrating the power of revolutionary Black music. This has been Andrea Crisp, and I hope you all feel loved this Valentine's Day. After all, abstract nouns like that can mean whatever you want them to. Keep rocking, and I'll see you next time. 